of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today we are talking about cultural affirming practices for sexual orientation and gender identity data, better known as SOGI. This is part two of a two-part series. Our first podcast was on terminology. Uh, new terminology, terminology that is important for everyone to know. My guests are Dr. Jennifer Bennett, Director of Nevada AIDS Education and Training Center, UNR, Reno School of Medicine, and Mary Carls, MPH and Program Director. Welcome to part two, ladies. Thank Good you. Good to have you back. Today we're going to um, talk not just about the terminology, because I'm sure that will come up, but why it's important to collect the data around sexual orientation and gender identity. And we're also going to discuss how providers, medical providers, can become more educated and understand what questions they need to ask. Most physicians don't ask about sexual orientation or gender identity, do they? Jennifer, do you, I, I know after the class uh, that you did for us at Access to Healthcare, uh, quite a few of us said that in our lifetime we've never been asked that. What we're asked is, are you sexually active, is what our, our physician would ask us. But I know at my age I've never na- been asked what my sexual orientation is because I think they make assumptions when they see me. So talk to me a little bit about why this is important and what you're trying to do. Yeah, so I think... I think more and more providers are, are learning about the importance of, of asking questions around sexual orientation and gender identity, and, and that's part of what we are trying to do is to train providers in exactly what you're asking. Why is this important, and, and why should they be asking these questions? Um, so when we're talking about sexual orientation and gender identity specifically, this training was designed around um, three questions specifically that are being uh, – that – federally funded organizations through HRSA um, are, are being required to report on. Um, and so FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, um, Medicare, Medicaid, those kinds of programs, and, and also Ryan White programs um, are, are going to start, I, I think maybe they already have, um, being required to ask um, sexual orientation and gender identity and questions. And so there's three specific questions that, that kind of fit into that, um, in, into that description. So sexual orientation is, um, is who are you attracted to? Um, and when we're talking about gender identity, there's two questions. The first one is what is your biological sex or what was the sex listed on your birth certificate? And then gender identity is the gender that you identify inside, or who do you feel, the gender that you feel like you are inside. Let's go back just a minute, Jennifer, and let people know what HRSA stands for. Uh, HRSA is an acronym for the Health Resources and Services Administration. It's a branch of the federal government that provides a lot of funding for healthcare. Yes, that's true. And they, for us, since we get uh, funding at Access to Healthcare for our Ryan White program, that comes from HRSA down to the state, and then it comes to us to be able to implement the program just so people understand. So when we, when we look at a provider's office, it sounds like there's this uh, new request from HRSA that at least people who get federal funding, like an FQHC, a federally qualified health center, et cetera, mm-hmm. would ask 
these questions and they're putting that into play. Yes. So, <clears throat> so it no longer will be male, female on the, uh, the report that you fill out. Well, so one of the questions, as I mentioned, is biological sex or sex identified at birth. And so that is still very binary um, on most questionnaires. So we have um, kind of male, female, and um, some states actually do recognize intersex, which is somewhere in between male and female. Um, but most, most people will have had a birth certificate with only two options, and that is male and female. So I would check female, but then the question would be, what is your sexual orientation and your gender identity? Right. So the next question would be gender identity, so which is separate from the sex listed on your birth certificate. So gender identity is the gender that you feel like you are inside. So I'm assuming that you don't have to answer those. But the other thing would be there would be a certain population that wouldn't even know what that means. So as part of your training for a provider's office, that they could ask somebody, what do you mean by that? Yes, absolutely. Part of the training is to to um, teach all of the providers, uh, including the front desk staff, including uh, nursing staff. Everyone in the clinic should have a really good understanding of, of how to answer those patient questions. So providers now usually do ask about sexual health. Are you sexually active and sexual health questions, but they don't ask about uh, gender identity and sexual orientation. I've never been asked that in my lifetime because they make an assumption, I'm assuming. Well, I think that that's part of it. Um, I think we all, we all make assumptions about each other. Absolutely. And, um, and part of it, I think, too, is that it, it really hasn't been a part of, of our training for providers, for you know, front desk staff, or it has, really hasn't been, it hasn't come to the forefront as it is now. So if somebody comes up to the reception office, um, and or the reception window and their name is John Smith but they to the receptionist is dressed in women's clothing they have makeup on etc what is it that you recommend that a, re a receptionist do at that time Jennifer it's really important for that receptionist to um, respect that patient and what that patient wants and so what's what would be really important in that situation is regardless of the gender expression of that patient um, to use the name that that patient asks that receptionist to use so if that person signs in as Jane then it's really important for the that front desk person to to use the name that 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 patient is using so on, I, I haven't filled out one of those forms in quite a while, a new one, because I have the same primary care doc, but is there a place on the form in the provider's office for a nickname, Mary? Because if, if they are, have always been Jane Smith and yet they're presenting then as uh, looking like Joe Smith, then is there a place where that reception person who's always known them as different would be able to see that I would like my name to be different now. Um, yes, that, that is definitely an option or um, another more, I think more affirming option is to just um, maybe not 
think about it so much on the part of the receptionist. And that person um, came into the office that one day as Jane, and today that person is coming in as John. Um, just recognizing that is where that person is at that moment in time that day, which may have been different before, and honoring that and calling the person by the name that they've checked in as. If the person has a nickname and it is shared by that individual that they do have a nickname that they would like to also be put on the chart, then that would be a different situation. But I guess what I'm getting to is for a lot of individuals, it's not a preferred or a nickname. It's simply who they are. And so um, I would, you know, I would kind of tread on that cautiously with as far as um, putting nicknames on people on charts and because so that is, can kind of generate assumptions as well. So what is the responsibility of the patient? to be able to let their provider know, to be able to say, I know you've always known me as John Smith, I want to be Mary Smith, or to let the provider's office know before they come in, or to say that to the receptionist. What, what do we consider their responsibility? Jennifer? You know, that's a great question. I think um, it's really tough. You know, that person is, you know, if that person is going through, um, you know, maybe that person is gender fluid, which means that they present as different genders at different times. Um, that's a, that's, that's not an easy kind of place to be for that patient. Um, if that person is going through um, a transition uh, in, trans, in transgender status, potentially, that's also a, a really, really tough thing to go through. And so I think that what we're trying to do is to um, make it as easy as possible on that patient to access healthcare. And so just having them walking through the door can be a really, really hard thing for that patient. And so having, having our providers and our clinics recognize that um, and not trying to put too many barriers in front of that patient for, you know, like, let us know what, before you get here, um, that kind of thing um, is, is, I think, ideal. If we can, you know, just keep that door open and then respond to that patient when they're, when they're in front of us um, and above all else, be respectful of how that person is presenting that day. Well, what is the, some of the disparities that we see in healthcare? I certainly have a list of them um, that are really um, quite profound, especially in the youth. LGBT youth are two to three times more likely to attempt suicide. LGBT youth are more likely to be homeless. Lesbians are less likely to get preventative services for cancer. Gay men are at a higher risk of HIV and other STDs, uh, especially among communities of color. So let's talk about disparities, because I know that part of your training is trying to minimize the disparities mm -hmm. in healthcare. Mary, wh how, what information would you give us on that? Well, I think <coughs> some of, um, just going back a little bit, just going back a little bit on the, um, back briefly to the importance of collecting SOGI data is that if you're not counted, you're discounted. And one um, important piece of collecting this information and being open to having these conversations is that it allows us to tell the LGBT story. It allows um, 
healthcare providers to identify health disparities. And um, really, as one, um, as one of the videos actually we show in the training, one of the providers mentioned in there that the LGBTQ community has special needs. And their special need is to be treated just like everybody else who is not part of the LGBTQ community who has been treated that way for years, which is simply asking the questions and getting to this whole person is, how are you sleeping at night? Do you have some, are you getting regular food? Do you have income? What is your um, sleep like? Are you, you know, are you homeless? What is going on in your life that is more affecting um, you accessing health care and getting the optimal care that you need. So I think with um, in our training as we're tying in the data and the importance of data and getting our funding and all of that important stuff, there's a bigger important picture where we can identify these health disparities and give it a safe space so that folks from this community can feel comfortable not only coming once but coming back and re coming back repeatedly to get their care and be able to address all their other health disparities um, by able, being able to open up these conversations and finding out what their challenges are. A healthcare provider can easily, you know, connect them to other services that would also be helpful in them accessing well, care. Well, the questions that you just brought up should be asked of everyone. Right. But what we're saying is that this community doesn't always get asked those questions. Right. And I, and honestly... And why is that? I think, quite frankly, one of the real bottom foundations of that is stigma. A lot of members um, of this community identify um, as being part of a community that is already marginalized and already faces a lot of um, health disparities. And um, again, as Jennifer has mentioned, this isn't always addressed in medical school with providers. Um, having the ability to address different um, communities and populations and their special needs. Um, and so we really need to bring this more to the forefront. I mean, one comparison is brought around um, when we started asking more the race question on census in 1960. That didn't come about till 1960 when we really started asking, you know, just white or not. Then we started getting into more black, African-American, and so on and so forth. And a lot of that motivation, again, is to collect that data to address those communities and realize, you know, black American communities have these huge disparities. How do we know that? We know that because we've been able to collect data and, and move forward. And so with the LGBTQ community, this is relatively new as far as really putting this data more as a priority and recognizing that again, this community needs to be treated just as everybody else has been treated and asked the exact same questions um, as anybody else would who does not identify with this community. Well, let's talk about the data. Uh, let's move into that a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, people are concerned about the security of their data. Mm -hmm. We all are. Mm -hmm. uh, but this takes it to another level. Yes. Takes it to another level. Um, and how where that would get shared. I mean, in this age of technology where our personal information is being hacked at all, you know, all over the place, um, I can understand somebody not want to disclose that. You know, take the gentleman that uh, I mentioned in the first taping 
that I met years ago, who during the day was uh, a banker, mm -hmm. very professional banker, and and then in the evening or at times would go out in women's clothing. Um, if he were to put that, I can understand somebody being very worried that somebody would um, discover something that only they uh, should be telling someone or showing someone. What about the data? Jennifer? Yeah. Um, that's obviously a concern. Um, as you mentioned, we're all concerned about where our, our patient data is going. Um, what I can say is that this data as part of a patient record is protected just like all other data in a patient record. Um, these particular questions do get aggregated um, and sent, you know, in, in um, reports to um, the federal government, um, HRSA, I mentioned um, the Health Resources and Services Administration who is requesting these data from clinics. And um, it, it is only shared um, in aggregate form. Um, and so that is, um, that is something um, certainly to keep in mind, but when trying to uh, convince a patient of that, you know, that's a whole other story and trying to, um, you know, we certainly don't want to tell our patients, we need this so that we can report it to the federal government. I mean, that's not the message that we want to send, right? We, why do we need this information? Well, we need this because we want to give you the best care possible. That's why we, we want to know this information about you. And, and that is really true, um, that, that if providers in the clinics have this information and, and they can really um, understand that whole patient, they will be able to provide better care for that person. And do you collect that data? Specifically, the AIDS Education and Training Center has nothing to do with collecting that they data. They don't collect it; they mm -hmm. just we do train. not. This is right. this is data that clinics will collect um, upon intake for a new patient. And are we? Do you think the future is that we're asking primary care docs that are not associated with a federally qualified clinic to collect that data? Is that what we're striving for, and be able to put it into a database? At this point in time, it's really um, being requested of any organization that receives funding from the federal government, from HRSA, um, to provide, to provide health care. Okay. Um, but you'd like to expand the education to providers that aren't getting federal funding? Certainly. And have you been able to do that? Are there providers in town that you've done training for that aren't associated with a clinic? I believe yeah, we have. Have you? I believe we have. They That's have great. been at some of our trainings. Not, I don't think that we have um, been able to access private um, clinics, for instance, that um, have no connection um, with, with our providers, but some providers have come to our trainings. Well, I would be more than happy to sponsor for you a training um, where we put it out to all of our providers. We would love to do that, yeah, however we can access. Yeah, let's talk of that, about that on the Great. side, because uh, we we have, what, 2,000 providers at Access to Healthcare, and we certainly could put out that we were having a training and they could send some people from their office and see if that's possible. So That'd be great. let's talk that's about that because, you know, partly the podcasts educate me too, and I see that mm -hmm. there's a real importance for this and that it would be beneficial for our community. Let's talk about the disparities and talk a little bit about some of the, uh, the ethnic groups because we already have healthcare disparities for African-Americans, healthcare disparities for... Uh, Hispanics. So then we add the double whammy to it of the healthcare disparity. 
with uh, gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, are we finding, of course, that that is uh, reflective of people and their diseases? So we have like a double whammy for certain ethnic groups. We mm -hmm. have a double whammy that they're already uh, have health disparities. We know that about African Americans. Mm -hmm. We know that about Hispanic. Mm -hmm. Just access alone mm -hmm. gives you a health disparity. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you're trying to identify those groups and do more training around the health disparities of those groups? Because now you've added a double whammy mm -hmm. to it. So yeah. would it be more important for people that are taking care of those groups to have this training? Mary? Yes, I, I do think so, for sure. We have had, we have had some, um, just in larger trainings, we've had some um, organizations who focus on the um, African-American community, for example, and um, it has, it is very helpful. Um, it just opens up another, as you said, another layer of conversation mm -hmm. and addressing those disparities. Um, what about pronouns? Let's talk about that a little bit because that can be very confusing about the pronouns. And when you do your training for a physician's office, what is it you're asking them to be aware of, Jennifer? So pronouns are pronouns are tricky and, and yet they're straightforward. Um, you know, being able to use the pronouns that some, that an individual identifies with, is the bottom line. And so um, it's, it's very important to, to understand um, the pronouns that your patient utilizes for themselves. And um, I think the, the, one, the one kind of caution that we give is, is using the term preferred. Um, uh, we, sometimes providers might think that asking a patient, what are your preferred pronouns? might be very respectful um, and and many people will disagree with you um, asking the term preferred indicates that that it's a that it's a preference and it's again it's not a choice the uh, many people who are transgender or identify as a different gender from their um, biological sex for instance um, it's not a choice it's who they are inside and therefore it's not a preference. And so we wanna stay away from the term preferred. And so we, uh, a better way to ask is, what are your pronouns? Not what are your preferred pronouns? So where should that be asked? Should that be asked at the front reception desk? Should it be asked on the information sheet that you fill out? Where, where's the best place to ask that? I think the best place to ask it is along with the demographic information that, that is included on the, the intake form. I don't know that that's happening, um, you know, in, in many clinics, but I think that's probably a great place for it. Let's talk about um, youth and the young people. They have uh, health disparities. They certainly are trying to navigate something that's very challenging, both in their families and outside their families. Do we ask them questions too? And at what age do you start asking questions? And what are federally qualified clinics being asked to do? Jennifer? So in our training, um, we, we talk about starting to ask these questions at age 12. 
um, that seems to be um, kind of the consensus among many providers. That's where that has come from. We didn't make that up at the AIDS Education Training Center. That's just kind of a, a standard or a best practice. Um, many pediatricians will tell you that they're having these conversations much earlier um, when children are identifying um, as transgender at younger ages, and, and you'll hear a lot about that in the news lately. Um, but standard is, is at about age 12. And do you need the parent's permission to ask the questions? No, you don't need the parent's permission to ask the questions. And usually, do you recommend that a provider have the parent out, out of the room? Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. and to give some privacy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It seems like um, adolescents are at a very much higher risk of committing suicide, mm -hmm. of using illegal drugs. Um, so with that in mind, would you recommend that the questions not just be asked, but also delve into some of the things that they're mostly at risk for? Do you recommend in the training for adolescents that the physician understand the risk for that population and that they ask the questions about the risky behavior once they understand or have been told by the adolescent um, that they're sexual about their sexual Id gender identity? Certainly, that would be best practice for that provider to, you know, to ask those risk questions. We don't get into that level of detail in our, tra in our mm -hmm. SOGI training. Mm -hmm. So in your SOGI trainings for physician offices, can you share with me, maybe not, certainly not specifics of what anyone said, but the overall attitude of the physician's offices or the clinics about this new information? Um, I'd be very curious. Mary, what have you found? Um, I found it. It can be. Um, it can be across the board. Um, overall, there is a very positive. Um, we get a lot of positive feedback. A lot of providers um, kind of have question marks floating over their heads because just I think this, um, as Jennifer had mentioned, this training is very interactive, and we try to bring about just raising an awareness and just thinking about the bigger picture and these terms and terminology. So overall, I would say we've had positive feedback. Um, it is not, um, I wouldn't say they come away from the training and I'm going to change our intake form right now. Um, it takes some time. Um, it's really, kind of, I feel like this is a small ripple in a large cultural shift and that takes time. And um, so, but I am positive, I am happy for the fact that there is positive feedback and an interest to learn, would say that for sure. Uh, Jennifer, <coughs> you wanna add something? Yeah, I, I would add that um, I think providers are grappling with this stuff um, more and more. And, and so they're coming to our trainings because they're starting to um, see, see patients. Um, I, I had a, um, a family practice provider ask me, how do I get training? I had a patient coming to me um, that wants to transition uh, in as a, um, I believe that his patient was a female to male and he didn't know how to do that. And so, so people are starting to really open up more um, to their primary care providers about, about, about their gender identity, for instance. And um, so I think, I think providers are appreciating learning the terminology, for instance, and learning how they can best meet the needs of their patients. So 
uh, those three questions, those important three questions that we're talking about that somebody you should ask somebody when they say they're not ready to change their form is first asking them to change the form yet? No, it's not a requirement to change the form. I guess what I meant by that is um, a lot of intake forms um, do not ask these questions. Maybe they don't even have to ask these specific questions. But um, just for example, opening up um, to just adding an extra couple of words to somebody's sex, opening that up to just having a male-female choice, um, just things like that. Um, there isn't a requirement to change the forms, but we do, um, we do, it's a way to make your clinic opening or more opening, more, more welcoming. Um, and just, it, it allows to open that conversation. You know, I see that you didn't mark one of these boxes. Let's talk about that. Do you have a question? Is there something that I can answer for you regarding that? I ask every, all my patients, these questions, I want to give you the best care possible. Um, so we're so really at the forefront of this. I mean, yeah. We really are at the beginning yeah. of the journey and that a decade from now it will be very different. And a decade mm -hmm. from now it may be very common that we'll be going to a doctor's office and we're filling out the form that those questions will be on the form. Mm -hmm. But right now the only place that those questions are is if you're in a uh, HIV AIDS program. Is that what I'm understanding? No, not necessarily. So again, it's any organization. So um, any organization that receives funding from the Health Resources and Services Administration. So that's Medicare, Medicaid, and, and also Ryan White, federally qualified health centers. Um, all of those programs are being required to aggregate this data and, and submit it back to. And let's to go back staff. so we're clear. What are the new questions that, that they're required to have on the form? So it's three questions. Um, sexual orientation and gender identity. So starting with gender identity, so number one, um, sex identified at birth, so biological sex. Number two is gender identity, so how the gender that you feel you are inside. And then the third question is sexual orientation. And uh, so they are changing their forms in some of those provider offices that do get that uh, funding from the government. Yes. Yes. And when did that start that they changed their forms? Um, I believe it's been going on since 2016. Don't I'm not positive on that, but I think it's right around 2016. Okay, so we've we've had some opportunity mm -hmm. to see how those questions on the form are received. Yes. Do we have a sense of that? How they're being received? Received by the patients? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Um, I I don't have a sense of that. Okay. That would be interesting to know yeah. how they're being received. Mm -hmm. um, and if there's feedback coming from the FQHCs, the Federally Qualified mm -hmm. Health Centers, and other organizations as to whether that information, especially that information, how it's being received by heterosexual people that come into the clinic right. that don't necessarily understand why the questions are even being asked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would find that absolutely fascinating on how that's being received. Yes, I yeah. would too. Mm -hmm. Well. Maybe that should be our next study. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so to go back and recap this, um, let's talk about what SOGI is. Let's go back to that and uh, give people an explanation of what SOGI is, uh, an explanation of 
what your training covers, just a brief synopsis of it, and why it's important for provider offices to start thinking about uh, the questions that they would ask. Do you want to start that, Jennifer? Sure. So SOGI, as, as I mentioned, it's an acronym S-O-G-I, um, Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. And as I mentioned, um, this, this training was started because HRSA started requiring clinics to provide data around sexual orientation and gender identity. And the reason that HRSA wants that information is because we need, we need that information in order to develop better programming um, and to meet the healthcare needs of, of people identifying in the LGBT community. We need to understand those populations in order to provide um, services um, that meet their needs. So that's really the goal of this. It's not to you know, track people or, or you know, put markers in their charts that, that we don't want. It's also then at the clinic level, at the provider level, it really gives the provider better information in order to, to meet the, the needs of that patient as well. And Mary, talk a little bit about the training that you do. Um, so the SOGI training is it's um, a three-hour training. It's very interactive. Um, we go over the, um, we introduce SOGI, why it's important. We define um, the data importance of it, and then we go into more um, discussion around the health disparities of the LGBT community. And um, we do delve pretty well into um, terminology and discussion um, around that. Um, I would bring up, too, that the terms um, are always changing. And so the terms that we even address in our training, we'd recognize that um, I already need to update it to include some other terms. But I um, just terms. learned these, Mary. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That'll be an updated version. But oh. um, so, so, yeah, so that's, um, that's pretty much our, our training. Yeah. And has it been well received in uh, Washoe County? Yes. That's fabulous. Yeah. That's fabulous. Um, Well, let's talk again, um, sort of to update and to wrap this up. Give me again, Mary, the three SOGI questions that are important for patient health and why we should be asking those. So the three questions, again, are um, it's gender identity. So what um, gender were you given at birth? And the next question is, which gender do you identify with? Which is, again, the deep-seated identification of your gender. And then your sexual orientation or who that individual um, finds romantically attracted to, um, who they would like to partner with or have sex with is their sexual orientation. Um, And the second part of your question, why? Well, why this is important to patients' health because that... Uh, my understanding is that's the reason we're even doing this. Mm-hmm. It's it's so important, and especially with this community again, because they face um, a large amount of health disparities just in the fact of not feeling comfortable about being able, able to communicate who they are, um, what their life is like, what their sexual behaviors are. And um, because of that, um, especially in the transgender community, they have extraordinarily high rates of cervical cancer. They're two times more likely to be diagnosed at a late stage cancer rate because they're not um, comfortable just identifying 
who they are. So that, again, is um, just a big need that we hope to educate and raise awareness so that they can increase um, healthcare access to this community and save lives. So Fabulous explanation. Can you tell us again where if somebody wanted to ask you some questions or be able to get a training from you, uh, where would they get a hold of you? Sure, they can go to our website. Our web uh, our website address is med.unr.edu backslash N-A-E-T-C. And both of my information and Jennifer's contact information is on there as well. We're happy to talk to anybody who's interested. So. Jennifer, you want to add anything to that? I think just in closing, the bottom line really um, with SOGI, it's all about respect. It's it's providers respecting their patients, um, presenting as whoever they are presenting as that day. And um, if, if we can all have greater respect for each other in and, and try to kind of bring some of those barriers down, I think we're going to be able to provide better care for everyone. Fabulous. Well, ladies, I want to thank you for your for your hard work in our community. This is uh, very, very important, and I don't know if you hear enough how much we appreciate that you're charging forward with this. It's absolutely fabulous. We've been talking um, today with Dr. Jennifer Bennett, Director of Nevada AIDS Education and Training Center, UNR, Reno School of Medicine, and Mary Carls, MPH and Program Manager. We've been talking about Affirming Practices for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Data called SOGI. Very complex topic, very important topic. Uh, We've given you the information uh, to be able to get a hold of Jennifer or Mary and to ask more questions. And I would really encourage you, if this was a start of a new conversation for you, that you get a hold of them or you talk to your family practice practitioner. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For a list of future podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast.